Welcome to the weekly podcast of Trinity Life Church. We are a local church that gathers in downtown Toronto on Sundays and all throughout our city during the week. Now our mission is to help people discover their identity and destiny in Christ so we can influence our city, our country, and our world. If you're looking for a place to call home, we'd love to have you. Our services are Sunday from 10.30 to noon at Jarvis Collegiate. Enjoy this week's podcast. All right. Hey, guys. Um, I always, I, I don't know how you guys felt during, during that, but when we were just, when Jamie had us reflecting on God's goodness, I felt like I could, God's goodness was so tangible, I could breathe it in. Like it was just, the, the presence of God was just here. And um, I don't know, it just felt weighty and amazing. And, and, uh, and then, I mean, God spoke through Joanna so powerfully, and I mean, it, it was just, it was amazing. So if this is your first time in church or a church like this, um, or you, this, is, this is something you're not used to, um, that was just, that was God. The, the weightiness you felt, the, maybe the little bit of awkwardness or uncomfortability you felt, that's that's God's presence with us, but hopefully also you felt his goodness and his peace and his holiness and his justice. So we're going to kind of take those things and, and jump into the book of Daniel. Uh, we are in a series called Scriptural Spiritual Awakening. Scriptural meaning the word of God, spiritual the spirit of God, and awakening. And Daniel's all is, the book of Daniel is all about a people who has been captured, uh, they're in exile, it's the people of Judah, the, formerly the people of, of God, and now they're in Babylon, and they're in exile, and they're slaves, and they're trying to figure out how do we still be the people of God in this, in something where we're, uh, a situation where we are oppressed, and where everything's been taken from us, where uh, our families are gone, our our resources are gone, and we're here in this foreign land with the foreign people trying to still be a light to the world. And so Daniel is a picture of that force, the, the person of Daniel. And so we've been following his, his story throughout, and we're in chapter 4 this morning. So we're going to jump into that, uh, and, and we've been talking about awakening a lot, because what we're going to see through the book of Daniel is that a nation is awakened. And, and so I've been sharing some stories about waking up. I told you guys a few weeks ago that... I'm not a morning person. I'm not not a morning person. I'm fine once I get up, but it's hard for me to wake up in the morning. Like so, I wish I was more like Missy. Some mornings, she or or a lot of mornings, Missy just pops out of bed, alarm goes off, she's up, she's running, she's good. I'm the opposite. Like I can actually be asleep right after I hit the alarm off. I I can fall asleep right then, uh, and it's it's. It's often my first chore to wake up <laughs> to wake up in the morning, and we like like I told you a couple weeks ago we we try to wake up pretty early so that doesn't help, uh, but but uh, waking up like I said it's it's hard to do sometimes and when we're talking about awakening we're talking about waking up and and uh, and God is trying to wake us up He's trying to wake this nation up He's trying to wake us up. And he's trying to wake us up as a church, you individually, and that's why we're going through this book. This past summer, 
we, we did our annual church retreat, church camping retreat. I say annual, we did it once, but everyone wants to do it again. So <laughs> I'm assuming it's going to be annual. Uh, so someone's got to plan it. I'm not, I'm not doing that. Um, I didn't do it last year either. So, uh, But it was awesome, right? We went up north. We went camping. Everyone brought their tents. People brought their dogs. We had Scrappy out there. We had Marlon Banjo out there. I love dog names. We had Tazo and Pom Pom out there. All these dogs are out there. We played sports and games. We prayed together. We worshiped together. We cooked together. We ate together. We did a whole small group BLG competition together where one of the teams won together while the other ones lost together. I won't say which one <laughs> won together, but you can see who I'm pointing to here. <laughs> uh, and it was just, it was an awesome time. And the thing I love about nature is waking up in nature is awesome, right? You wake up and the birds are chirping, the, uh, the wind is blowing through the trees. Uh, if you're camping, the fire is, is crackling and it's just amazing to, to wake up in nature. Something else I love waking up to and going to sleep to <laughs> is rain. Like, I love the sound of camping. I grew up, we grew up camping, and I, I loved camping by a rushing river. Because it's just a soothing sound. Or when it's rain, it's sprinkling. Um, and it's always pleasant waking up to something like that, too. So one of the mornings on the camping retreat, we were in our tent. Me and Missy, the girls, were in our tent. And the birds are singing the fire's crackling, the wind, the breeze is going through the trees, and I wake up to this sprinkling on the tent. And my first thought is, is, oh, this is so pleasant and so nice. I hope it doesn't, but I hope it doesn't rain all day. And then I hear some footsteps running to our tent, and I hear Paul say, Tazo, Tazo. And then I hear, Arr! and the sprinkling stops because Taza was peeing on our tent, <laughs> right by my head. He was peeing on the corner where my head was. Talk about a rude awakening. So that was probably the most uncomfortable wake-up call I've, I've ever had. But in general, waking up is, is difficult. It's hard because physically, you've been laying there all night. So in the mornings, you're, you haven't used those muscles, so you're stretching, you're trying to get going. Um, you know, mentally, you've just snapped out of dream world. Now you're into the real world. Emotionally, like all your troubles come back on. You know, your relationship issues, your, your family stuff, your job stuff, your school stuff, your financial stuff, all the stuff comes on. And so emotionally, it's, it's hard too. And some days you're just like, oh, I could just lay here forever. And a lot of days, my first thought is, I can't wait to get back to this spot <laughs> tonight. I want to get back in its, into this bed and go back to sleep. And, and oftentimes waking up, there's, there's discomfort with it. But if we want to see awakening happen, if you want to experience awakening, then you're going to have to experience a certain level of discomfort. And that's the bottom line that we're going to take through the sermon today, is that, <coughs> is that if you're going to experience the delight of awakening, then you have to experience the discomfort of waking and even in spiritual awakening, there's going to be muscles that, that you don't use, that you haven't used in a long time. There's going to be a discomfort with that. There's going to be an emotional weight and, and, and that you're going to feel and carry. There's going to be a mental switch for you. And it's going to maybe feel uncomfortable. 
Uh, but if we want to experience the delight of it, then we may have to be okay with some discomfort. And we're going to see that in this passage. So jumping in here, uh, this is the only account, chapter 4, in the book of Daniel, where we see God's providence specifically. And I talked about providence last week and how that is God, God uh, is, is he's bigger than everything and he's, he's orchestrating things and he's, he's intimate in things, although he's transcendent, all that we talked about last week. So this is the only passage in the book of Daniel where we see God's providence uh, focused on a Gentile, focused on someone who's not Jewish, not the people of God, the chosen people of God, but now it's focused on the king. It's focused on the king of Babylon, on Nebuchadnezzar. And, and Nebuchadnezzar begins this by addressing things in first person. So he writes part of this. He, he, and he gives this thing. He says, to all peoples, nations, languages that dwell on all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. And he begins to recognize who God is. Okay, remember what just happened? He, in chapter 3, he threw some guys in the fiery furnace to, to burn to death. And then he sees someone, he says this, he sees someone like the son of the gods in there with them. And he says to his guys, he's like, didn't we throw three guys in there? And they're like, yeah. And he says, well, I see four now. And he sees the manifest presence of the son of God in that furnace. And, and those three men are saved. And nothing, there's no, no harm had come to them. So this is right after, this is after that. And he says, so he recognizes who God is. In a sense, he says, it seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders in verse 2 that the Most High God has done for me. See, Nebuchadnezzar, he, is, he has all these gods that he's chasing after. All the, he's worshiping all these gods. And he's recognizing God as one of those gods, as the greatest of those gods, as the Most High of those gods. Not as God alone. Not as the one true God. And he even says, how greater is science, how mighty is wonders, his kingdom is everlasting, his dominion is everlasting as well. But he doesn't quite recognize God as who he is. He's getting there. He's, he's slowly getting there. And for a lot of us, that's where we are. A lot of you guys are right there. You, you recognize Jesus as God, but... In your life, practically, he's just one of the gods. He's just there. And he may be the greatest one, but he's just, he's just one of them. And for some of you that may be actually, you have, you know, you're, you have, you're consumeristic in a sense, and you have Jesus and all his pros and cons. You have Buddha, all his pros and cons. You have, you, have, uh, you know, Vishnu and all the pros and cons. You have, and you're listing all these different gods out. But for a lot of us, we're not polytheistic in that sense. For a lot of us, we have Jesus, and he's, he may be the greatest. But then you have your job, and then you have your family, and then you have relationships, and then you have money, and then you have success, and then you have sex, and then you have all these lesser gods. And Jesus is just the greatest one that you go to from time to time, but really you're worshiping all these other gods. And you might be saying to yourself, well, I'm not that way. Here's how you discern for yourself if that's you. What do you spend your time doing? What do you spend your money on? Uh, what do you talk about most? And where is God in all of that? 
And if you asked yourself those questions, where would God be in all of that? Where would Jesus fit into there? Is he the one that you talk about a lot? Is, 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 does your, where, where your finances are spent, do you see that through the lens of Christ? Or you just do whatever you want. Uh, where you spend your time, is that mostly in jobs? Is that mostly in Netflix? Is that mostly in YouTube? Is that mostly in, well, I don't know, social media, Instagram, Facebook? These are all lesser gods. And where is Jesus in all of that? Because Jesus can be in all that. We don't need Jesus in his own column over here. He wants to be in every part of your life. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar, that's the journey he's on. He thinks right now, he's like, oh, well, he's the most high God. He's over here. Now we have all these other ones. Um, and you see this later because he talks about his God. Daniel's named after his God in verse 8. He says his name is Belteshazzar after my God. And so you see he's still thinking this way. So that's Nebuchadnezzar. And then he goes on in verse, in verse 4. And he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. How many of us are, are just, you may say, well, that, that must be nice to be prospering in a palace and ease, ease in his house. But think about your life. How many of you guys are there? How many of you guys are just seeking a life of comfort and living a life of comfort? And, and you want to make sure you're, you have the things that you want. You want to make sure you're successful here. You want to make sure that everything's going well here. And that's how you want to live out your life. That's Nebuchadnezzar. He's just at ease and prospering. And he's not experiencing awakening because that's what he values. He values ease and comfort and prospering. And for many of us, that's where we are. But also for many of us, we're not just living in comfort, we're living in fear because we're afraid that those things can be taken away from us. It says Nebuchadnezzar, he had this dream and it made him afraid. It says he lay down in his bed and the visions in his head alarmed him in chapter 5. And he's scared because he's scared something's going to be taken away from him. And then so he calls everyone together in verses 6 and 7. He says, magicians, enchanters, astrologers, come interpret this dream for me. And no one can do it. This is what happened two chapters ago. No one could do it. And then Daniel, he brings Daniel in. And Daniel comes in. And he says this about Daniel and to Daniel. He says, he who is named comes in, in whom the spirit of the holy gods is in. Then he goes on and he speaks to him and he says, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me, tell me the dream and the interpretation. Tell me what, what I saw. And so Nebuchadnezzar recognizes in the people of God an element of the spirit of God, of the divine spirit. Now, he doesn't know. He doesn't know this terminology necessarily that it's the Holy Spirit, but he recognizes there's something different, right? He recognizes that Daniel is not like everybody else. And so he calls it out of him. He says, I know the spirit of the holy gods is in you. And then he says, and I know that there's no mystery that's too difficult for you. Literally in the Hebrew, that is, that is read as there is no mystery that oppresses you. He says, no mystery is oppressive to you. For a lot of us, mysteries are oppressive to us. We, we need to know. We live in a, a culture, in a time, post-enlightenment, where we need to know, where we have to know. We have to know 
certain things. And for a lot of that, because of the post-enlightenment and history and the history of thought and philosophy, that's why a lot of people have, have said, oh, um, there, there is no God. And, and we've had this movement of, of going away from who God is and, and that, there is, that there even is a God. Because now we need to know, and we think we can know, and we think we can know everything. And we have this pressing need to know, but God in his essence is incomprehensible. He's, we can't full, ever fully know him here. It's impossible. He's God. If we could, he wouldn't be God. He'd just be like you and me, right? So, but Nebuchadnezzar also recognizes this characteristic in Daniel, and he says, no mystery oppresses you. You're comfortable with trust. You're, com- you're comfortable with faith. And if we're going to experience awakening, if you individually are going to experience awakening, if we're going to s- experience it as a church, then we have to be comfortable with trust. We have to be comfortable with stepping out in faith. We have to be comfortable with taking a risk of faith. We have to be comfortable with the mystery. Yeah, I can't impress this. So he tells Daniel his dream. And he basically says there's a big tree, and it's filling the entire earth, and it's providing shade, it's providing food, it's providing shelter for birds, um, its leaves are beautiful, and he says this to Daniel, and then uh, he keeps on talking about the dream in verses 13 through 17, and he says, then a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven, an angel. So an angel comes down, and he says, chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit, let the beast flee from under it, the birds from its branches, but leave the stump. He says, so chop down the tree, but don't root it out from the ground, leave the stump. And the stump is left. And then he says, let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's to a beast's, and let seven periods of time pass over him. And then he says, this is, and it says the watchers are saying this, the, the angels are saying this to him. And it says to him, and they say to him, this is so that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. I want you to tuck away the lowliest of men in your, in your mind for later and then also the stump in your mind for later. We'll come back to it. And he, he tells them that this is the dream. And, and he says, the Holy, the Holy Spirit is in you, the Spirit of the gods is in you, so tell me its interpretation. And we see in verse 18 that Daniel is actually dismayed. He's, his, it says his thoughts alarmed him. The, f- the interpretation wasn't favorable to the king. It was actually a really hard interpretation. And, and so he tells him, he tells Nebuchadnezzar that actually... That's you. You're the tree. You're going to get chopped down. You're going to turn, your mind is going to turn from a man's into a beast's. And that's, that's what's going to happen unless awakening happens. And when I think about it, when I read this, I was like, the interpretation there seems pretty simple. Right? Like, when you, when you hear the dream, when you, when you see the dream, we don't have to go too far to say, yeah, I think Nebuchadnezzar's a tree and something's going to happen to him. And, and the author here, 
he shows us, and we see this all through the scriptures, actually. We, we see that there's a distinction between the people of God and the people of the world. And, and there's a lot of parallels between Daniel and Joseph. So you remember the, the story of Joseph? Same thing. Joseph sold into slavery, in exile, uh, interprets dreams while he's in prison, and then he gets elevated to like this really high position. This is Daniel's story. It's the same thing. Daniel's in slavery, he's called to interpret dreams, and then he gets elevated to this high position in, in the royal court. So we see these parallels between Daniel and Joseph, and there's only one, pers- one other person in the scriptures where a king like this says, the spirit of the holy God is in you, and it's Daniel and Joseph. So we see so many things between Daniel and Joseph. And when you read the Joseph narrative, Joseph shares a dream with his brothers, and they don't ask for an interpretation. They automatically know what's going on. And then when Joseph shares the dream to his father, Jacob, Jacob also knows the interpretation. There's nothing special. And, all, and we see this distinction between the people of God, those who have the spirit of God, and the people of the world. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the spirit of God. You have the spirit. This same spirit that's in Daniel is in you. And you have the fullness of it. And you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. And for those of you guys who aren't, who, who aren't familiar with the Christian faith, it sounds really strange to have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. But that's what it is. Like Jesus has come to his spirit to reside in us and use us for his glory and, and bring others to him. And... And we see here this distinction between people who live in that spirit and people who don't. And things like this for people who live in the spirit, they just come. They just come automatically. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, we have the mind of Christ. And for you guys who consider yourselves followers of Jesus, look, you either are a follower of Jesus or, or you're not. Like, Jesus makes it really simple. He says, he says, you're either all in, you can't be half in, or you're not in at all. And yeah, a lot of us are on our journey of faith. We're trying to figure things out. But it starts with just saying, yes, Jesus. I've given myself to you, and this is, this is, this is me. This is everything. And then letting Jesus, through his spirit, work in us. Paul says, like I said, you have the mind of Christ. And you need to start to say, am I part of the people of God or am I living as part of the people of the world? I'm one or the other. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says this. It says, For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You have that light in you. That light of the glory of God. And you have that knowledge. And so we see that here through Daniel. And he gives this interpretation. He says, that's, that's you. And he says, therefore, O king, in verse 27, because the stump is left, he says, your kingdom shall be confirmed. But therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. And if we want to see God move, there's certain things that we have to do. 
And there's certain things that a follower of Jesus, one who has the Spirit of God, does. And for us as a church, for those of you guys who consider yourselves followers of Jesus, for us as a church, these are things that we should practice because we follow Jesus Christ. And these are, these are the three things. So, number one, you need to confess your sin. This is coming out of 1 John, 1 John 5 through 10. Teresa, do you have those passages on the screen? Okay. Let me turn to those real quick. So, 1 John 5, 1 through 10 says, says this. Sorry, 1, 5 through 10. It says, this is the message you've heard from him and proclaim, that God is light. There's no darkness in him at all. And if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie, do not practice the truth. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then the book of James says that when we confess our sins, it brings healing to us. We actually step into healing when we confess our sins. Now, this is part of the discomfort of waking up. If you want to experience w- awakening, and here's the thing, a lot of us want to experience awakening. We're like, yeah, that'd be awesome. But we don't actually want to experience the discomfort of waking up. And this is part of that. And when we, if we actually want healing, if you actually want healing in your life, the Bible says it comes through confessing your sin and doing that to one another, confessing your sin to one another, and it says you will be healed. And, and it says that God is faithful and just to do this. So that's not a practice that is, is common even in the church. That's hard, right? It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for, for me to tell you what I struggle with. It's uncomfortable for you to tell me what you struggle with. And you're, you're bearing your soul, you're, you're breaking down a wall, and you're, you're going past the veneer of everything's good in life, and, and you're saying, yeah, I'm struggling with this, and I need help with this, and you're throwing yourself on accountability and into the community. But if we want to see awakening and experience awakening, we have to make confessing our sins a rhythm. So the second thing, So you need to confess your sin. Second thing is you need to cultivate generosity. And we see here in this passage that that he says to Nebuchadnezzar that you need to show mercy. And a simple definition of mercy is, is we always talk about in terms of receiving, like you receive something that you didn't deserve. But when you receive something you didn't deserve, that means that that person had to give you something that you didn't deserve, which means that person had to sacrifice something to you, which means they actually didn't get what they deserved probably. Does that make sense? They probably didn't get what they deserved in order to give you something you didn't deserve. And we, we need to cultivate generosity if we want to be merciful. If we're going to give people things they don't deserve, and we're not judging people and saying, oh, you don't deserve this, you deserve this. We're just being generous with everything we are, with who we are as a church, with who you are as individuals. And, and he says that here to Nebuchadnezzar, that this mercy has to define you. This mercy defines us who, who are followers of Jesus, who are, who are experiencing awakening, hopefully. And then the third thing is the oppressed. You need to care for the oppressed. This is, uh, a reference for this is Matthew 25, 
where, where Jesus says, uh, I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. And they say, when did we do all those things? He says, the righteous answer and say, when did we do that? I don't remember doing that. And he says, when you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you actually did it to me. And this is just caring for the oppressed. We do this as a church in our BOGs. We do this in our global work. We do this in St. Jamestown in our local work. But it has to be a lifestyle for each of us individually if it's going to be something we do as a church collectively. So those are, those are three things. If we want to see awakening, we're going to have to experience some discomfort in those three things. And those things aren't comfortable. Who wants to give away all their resources? Most of us say, yeah, I don't, I don't really want to do that. But, we, but in order to cultivate generosity, we have to be willing to do that. Who, who wants to care for the oppressed when we just want to be at ease in our palace? We have to press into that. Who wants to confess your sins when it's good? We're having a good relationship right now. But we have to press into that too. So it's, it, it's going to look a little uncomfortable, but God moves through those things. And we see that here. Nebuchadnezzar experiences this awakening. And God gives him a chance. It's 12 months later. It's a whole year later. God has given Nebuchadnezzar a chance for this dream and the interpretation not to come true. A whole year later. And if you look at Nebuchadnezzar's life, God's given him a lot of chances. God has given him a dream before, before that. We had the fiery furnace thing where he saw, he saw the Son of God. And now this. And now a year later, Nebuchadnezzar is walking on the roof of his palace and he says, this is all my doing. This is all my glory. This is all my power. And as the scriptures say, as those words were still coming out of his mouth, he was struck with madness. And he started acting like a beast of the field. And for seven, for seven periods of time, we don't know, those are indefinite. We don't know what those actually were. Um, he was driven from among men. This is verse 33. He ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers. His nails were like bird's claws. And that sounds really hard to believe, right? Like that's, that can happen to somebody like that. Um, but actually in history, there's other kings who've experienced similar things. It's not, um, it's not uh, this isn't a singular occurrence in, in history. Look up George III, look up um, Ludwig II if, you wanna, if you're interested in history. So this happens to Nebuchadnezzar, and it says at the end of those days in verse 34, he has this awakening, and he lifts his eyes to the heavens, and his reason returns to him, and he blesses God, and he recognizes God now, not just as one of the gods, but the God with the ultimate authority. He says, his dominion is everlasting, his kingdom endures forever, all the inhabitants, uh, and he talks about all the earth. And he says, at the same time, in verse 36, my reason returned to me, and the glory of my kingdom returned to me, my majesty, my splendor returned to me, and I was established in my kingdom, and more greatness returned to me. And now I praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. And he has this awakening after he experiences this, this discomfort. And he realizes what he has to do. And finally, he turns his eyes to the heavens and declares God as God. And it changes everything. It changes the entire kingdom for God's glory. There are 
in the scriptures, there is a, God kind of puts together a kingdom theology of trees. And here we have the appearance of a tree in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And it's a tree that fills the entire earth. And it, it says it's visible from everywhere on the earth. And at the beginning of the, book, uh, of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, we have the tree of life. And the tree of life is there in the Garden of Eden, and it's, it's providing food, it's, it's providing life for the people of God, for kingdom citizens, for those who live in the kingdom. And everything's perfect then, right? And then, and then we have Ezekiel chapter 17, and we see another tree that represents the people of God. And it's this massive tree that's on top of this mountain. And it's doing the same thing. It's providing shelter. It's, it's doing what, what this tree was doing. Uh, food and sustenance and fruit. It's bearing fruit. And then, and then in Ezekiel 31, we see this tree that represents a, n- a different kingdom. It's a large cedar, and it represents the, the kingdom of, of Assyria. And then now here in Daniel chapter 4, we see this tree that represents Babylon. And it's this, this another earthly kingdom. And so there's this theme of trees representing kingdoms. But in all those instances, those trees either disappear or are destroyed. And only a stump remains in, in some of those. But like the tree of life, we don't even know what happened to it, right? It just, it just kind of disappears out of the text a little bit. And, and we have all these stumps left. And Job, centuries earlier, prophesied that whenever there's a stump left of a tree, there's always Whenever a stump remains, there's always hope. If it's rooted in the ground, it can come back to life. And so Isaiah picks up on this. And in Isaiah chapter 6, he says, you know what that stump is? That stump is the holy seed. And you know what the holy seed is? It's all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when the tree of life, when the people of God were separated from the tree of life, And God said, a seed will come and redeem and rescue all of us. And so Isaiah, centuries later, says, that stump, it's it's actually the holy seed. And in Isaiah chapter 11, he says, and out of that stump, a holy spirit tree will rise up. He says, out of that stump, this tree will come out, and it will be filled with the holy spirit. And then Jesus comes on the scene. And we're waiting for Jesus to come. We're waiting for this seed to come, this rescuer, this redeemer this, this Messiah, and Jesus comes on the scene, Matthew chapter 13, and he says, this seed, it's a mustard seed, it's the smallest of, of the seeds in this region. And when you plant it in the ground, guess what happens? It grows into a tree. And he says, this is the kingdom of heaven. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like a small seed that gets planted in, and it grows in this big tree. And what, do you see, what does he say about the tree, if you remember? He says birds make their, their nests in it. It provides shelter, it provides shade, it provides sustenance, it bears fruit. All the same characteristics of these, of these trees. And then it's not until the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 22, that we see the tree of life make its reappearance. And in Revelation 22... The tree of life is massive. It's doing all those things. It's, it's producing fruit. It's providing shade and shelter. And it says it's bringing healing to the nations. 
and it's massive, and the river of life is flowing out of the throne of God, the throne of Jesus, the throne of the Lamb, it says. And guess where that throne is seated? It splits the tree of life. It's seated right in the middle of the tree of life, and the tree of life is on both sides of the throne of God, of the river of life that's flowing out of the throne of God. And we have this tremendous picture of these trees that God is saying, that's the gospel. That's the kingdom of God. And that's the beauty of what we've entered into. And that's the beauty of, of, of waking up, that we've entered into something that provides sustenance and shade and shelter, that we enter into something that gives us life. And this tree of life is, is not just... Uh, it's, it's not just a tree, it's, it's a symbol of, of who Jesus is, right? Jesus is the ultimate tree of life. And which is why the Old Testament says that whoever dies on a tree is cursed. And that's why Jesus dies on a tree. He dies on a cross. And the tree of life now becomes the cross of Christ. That gives us life. And so if you want to experience awakening this morning, you have to do it through the cross. If we want to experience awakening as a church, we have to do it through the cross. And it's only through the cross of Christ, in the cross of Christ, where he takes away the sins of the world, where he takes away our sins, and we confess our sins, where he, where he says, I am showing you mercy. This was not the life that I was supposed to, I wasn't supposed to die for you. I'm choosing to die for you. And I'm choosing to be hung on this cross and murdered as a criminal for your sake and show you mercy. And I'm choosing to do this for all the oppressed. And he says, blessed are those who live that life. And he says, come all to me who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And it's on the cross of Christ that he makes this possible for us. So this morning, we're going to celebrate this in baptism. We're going to see this beautiful picture of, of baptism. And this morning for us, I want you to ask God what he wants you to do to step into awakening. I want you to ask God what he wants you to do to step more into the gospel. I want you to ask God what it, what it means to follow him this morning. And I want you to experience awakening this morning. God wants to give you the delight of awakening, but it may have to come through, the, through some discomfort of waking. Okay, let's pray this morning. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it is true, that it is beautiful, that it is glorious, that it just pieces together so amazingly. I'm so in awe of, of how you have done things through history and how we are just one little tiny piece in there, but yet you pursue us, and you love us, and you chase after us, and you never, ever, ever give up on us. Thank you for showing that to us in Nebuchadnezzar. You didn't give up on him, and you don't give up on us, so pursue us this morning. Draw us to you this morning, and let us know your presence and your rest this morning. We ask in your name. Amen. If you want to know more about the TLC community, check out trinitylife.ca or you can find us on Facebook. Of course, we'd way rather meet you in person, so we hope to see you at a service soon.